Psalm 32. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and show you the way to go. With my eye on you, I will give counsel. Do not be like a horse or mule without understanding that must be controlled with bit and bridle, or else it will not come near you. Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. I know most of you, but I see a few new or unfamiliar faces. So for those of you who fit into that category, my name is Mark Dodd. Uh, my wife Megan and I have been coming to this church since uh, a little, like two and a half years ago. Um, but we've kind of had deep roots in this church since before it even started. Um, got connections with many people sitting in chairs through various, various places. Um, if you're visiting this week, you should also know I'm not the pastor um, our, our typical pastor is Chris Pabletti, and he's here with us today, but um, he is on a sabbatical because preaching and pastoring is a lot of work, um, and it's also a lot of weight on the heart. And so we're doing our best to give Chris and his family some time to be fully away from the work of doing ministry, and so that's why I'm standing in front of you right now. Um, today we're going to talk about Psalm 32, but before we do, let's go ahead and pray. Father, it is a tough thing to look at why we need to be forgiven. It can be a painful thing, and it is really happy, joyful news to know that we are or can be forgiven. And so for all of us here, Lord, anyone who is prone to avoiding the pain of being a sinner, Lord, open their eyes to their need. Anyone who is prone to getting stuck in the condemnation of being a sinner, open their eyes to the great joy of forgiveness through your Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So this psalm, Psalm 32, is a psalm that really gets right to the heart of everything we would get right on the theology exam, but we don't really understand in our day, out, day in and day out default. We don't feel it in our hearts, and often we don't believe it in our reality. In other words, when you hear what this psalm has to say, it's very likely if you've spent any time in your Bible, any time in church, any time talking to Christians or listening to Christians, it's very likely to seem that what this psalm has to say is extremely obvious. Forgiveness, after all, is really at the heart of what we believe. However, when you measure what this psalm has to say about your moment-to-moment -moment thoughts, the decisions you make and why you make them, or how you act when you wrong another person, when you measure those things against what this psalm has to say, it's very likely that you will find yourself, as I often do, living in a world that is very different than Psalm 32. That's why we get it right on the test, but we often get it wrong in our lives, okay? So, so let's take a moment here, just we can pull it up on the screen to revisit our weekly welcome here. Before we have our call to worship, each week we, we get a welcome 
And the first part of it, where the leader welcomes all of us weary sinners, it says this, to all who are weary and look for rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who fail and desire strength, and probably we're going to be camping out on the last one, but the last one leads to all the other ones, to all who sin and need a savior. Those are the people who we're welcoming into this church. And I'm going to be honest with you, whatever you think about yourself, that is every person, not only here, but in the entire world. The thing is to know it, okay? Psalm 32 is good news to people who need a welcome like that. That's the people who it's good news to. The gospel is good news spoken into bad circumstances. Because on the one hand, it's honest about what we know is true about ourselves, although we wish it wasn't. And that's that we are sinners worthy of punishment. Not only that, but the gospel dials that fact up to 11, more than we're aware of. On the other hand, the gospel speaks love and forgiveness to us despite our sin. The gospel is good news for real people. And so regardless of who you are, what your religious background is, everyone here needs to know the message of Psalm 32. And that message is this. There is great joy in being a forgiven sinner. There is great joy in being a forgiven sinner. So I'm not known for my brevity, but everything I'm going to say is basically that, okay? So I'm, I'm going to do my best to, to be better at brevity today, but there we go. The whole message is right there. There is great joy in being a forgiven sinner. And that's important. If you're here and you do not know Jesus in a saving way, if you have not asked for and received forgiveness from him, you need to know that there is great joy in being a forgiven sinner. And if you are a believer who has been walking with Jesus for as long as you can remember, you need to know that there is great joy in being a forgiven sinner. The gospel is for everyone. It's the one thing that all of our hearts need. So let's dig into Psalm 32. Um, here's going to be our outline for today. It's real simple. Basically, we're just going to follow the outline David uses. First, he gives us an announcement. Okay, David tells us something that he thinks is very important. Then he gives us his testimony. He tells us what that looked like for him. Then he gives us an invitation or a call to action. It's a little bit of both. And then he gives us a promise on which we can rest as we follow that call to action. So let's start with the announcement that David gives. And here's the announcement. There is joy in being forgiven. There is joy in being forgiven. Okay, in the CSB, which we've recently changed to, I, I think they've actually been sort of updating their own translation. What, what I was reading said it's, it's how joyful is the one whose, transition, whose transgression is forgiven. Um, I think maybe a newer or maybe an older version, I don't know which one it is, said how happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. If you read the ESV or any older translations, um, probably you've read how blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And the truth is that biblically, especially in the Psalms, there's not a difference. There's some nuance, but it's that same word is sometimes translated happy in the Bible, sometimes translated blessed. And we think of our happiness as the experience of being blessed by God. Okay, so the announcement David wants to give us is that there is joy in being forgiven and the first thing that I want to look at is the fact that this is much less obvious than it may seem. It feels obvious to us that there's joy in being forgiven, but I think it's much less obvious to us than it might seem. And here's what I mean by that. Forgiveness is thought of as a great virtue in our society, isn't it? If you hear that someone is a forgiving person, that feels like a very big compliment, doesn't it? We all believe others should forgive us when we sin. Um, I don't know about the other way, or I don't know if we would seek it and, and, and say that we sinned. Um, but we all believe that others should forgive us when we sin, don't we? We all hold up mercy as a virtue. 
to be merciful. However, it's not obvious that someone who needs forgiveness should be forgiven. I, I was listening to a radio, um, I'm going to go like 80 years old. I was listening to a radio program <laughs> a little while back. And uh, this was a few years ago, but it was kind of in the height of this Me Too movement that happened. And it was one of the most interesting things I've ever listened to. Because there, there was, what it was about is there was a celebrity chef. And this guy was a jerk to women in a lot of different ways. And the story had two people on the back end of it. What happened is this man actually ended up saying, yeah, they were right about me. I did these things. He said, I need to be different. And so he opens his restaurant again. He sets up this all-women all board to which he basically has to run everything by, and they can like dethrone him if they want to. Um, but one woman comes onto this show, and she worked for this man, and she said, I never get to move on from what he did to me, so why should he get to move on from what he did to me? And she had a pretty good point, didn't she? That seems fair. And another woman came on the show and said, if our world is going to get better, people like him need to get better. And so I want to give him a shot. Opposite, really good points. The point I'm making here is it's not obvious that someone who needs to be forgiven should be forgiven. Sin needs something to make it even. And so that, that needs to be made clear, and David makes it clear here that forgiveness is somehow on the table. But it shouldn't feel as obvious to us as it probably does. We assume forgiveness a lot of the time, and we leave out justice. Additionally, here's a problem that most of us have when forgiveness leaves the theoretical space. Okay, all of us say, yeah, yeah, forgiveness is good, technically. Okay? But the problem most of us have when it leaves the theoretical space is this, only sinners are forgiven. So who does that make you when you're being forgiven? It makes you a sinner. Who does that make me when I'm being forgiven? It makes me a sinner. There, there was an interview um, that Donald Trump gave to CNN where he said something that like, people jumped on like crazy. It doesn't seem that ridiculous to me. It kind of sounds like my heart. He says this, I like to be good. He was asked, have you ever asked God for forgiveness? He said, I like to be good. I don't like to have to ask for forgiveness. That's cool. But are you good? Maybe you do have to ask for forgiveness. It seems ridiculous to all of us, but at the end of the day, to seek forgiveness means that we need to admit our sin. Jesus said it like this, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. People who don't think they're sinners don't need to listen to Jesus because he has nothing to say to them. He's calling those who know that they're sinners. There's a good reason, though, that we're not naturally inclined to be forthright with our sin. And that's because we innately know that sin is not acceptable. Whatever we may say about mercy, whatever we may say about forgiveness, we innately know in our hearts that sin is not acceptable. And we just do, okay? Um, but this, this comes out in the Bible too. Think about Adam's, Adam and Eve's first impulse when they sinned. What was it? Their first impulse was to feel shame. Was their shame a problem? Not their feeling of it, the presence of it. They had something to be ashamed of after they sinned. And so what they felt was right, but they, they felt shame about their bodies, and then they tried to cover them with leaves so they would no longer be naked. They wanted to cover it up because it was not acceptable. David's first impulse, the, the one who penned this psalm, when he sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba, his first impulse was to cover it up. Okay, he, he got this woman pregnant who is not only not his wife, but whom he coerced into his bed by his kingly power, and, and he got her pregnant, which was evidence of his sin. And so what did he do? He tried to get her husband to come home from the battlefield and sleep with his wife so he could say, oh, look, you got a son. Um, the man was too upstanding. The man didn't do that. The man said, how could, I, how could I do that 
when all of my fellow soldiers are out here on the battlefield right now. And he slept outside. He didn't even go into his house. Um, And so when that didn't work, what did David resort to? He resorted to murder. He got this guy killed by putting him on the front line to make sure that combat would eliminate his problem. So David, just like Adam and Eve, went to cover up to deal with his sin. And my guess is that your first impulse when you sin is to explain it away, to justify it, or to hide it. Here's what really happened. Here's why I did it, which makes it okay. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure you never find out so I don't have to do those first things. That tends to be how we respond to sin. And we do this because we know that sin is not acceptable. And whatever we may claim to believe about being accepting, about being merciful, about being forgiven, we say loud and clear with our actions that we know that sin is not acceptable. So what do we even do with that? Every time we try to explain, justify, or hide our sin, we prove that not only that we know that it's not acceptable, but, but maybe there should be a little empathy there too, because this is also why we feel the need for compassion in our sin. I, I think that's why we go immediately to just like, you should have mercy on me. You should forgive me. Why? Because we know that we're in pain. We know that there's something wrong with us. And both things are true at the same time. Okay. When we talk about being forgiven for sin, though, we also have to be talking about being honest about sin. And because of that, that can be a really scary thing. Um, So to bring a little levity to it, I have a story from my personal life. Um, Megan and I recently went to Washington. My family's had a cabin up there on this little remote island since the 60s. And so we go there every summer. Um, I have since I was one. And we always drove up there growing up, but now that we have kids and time off work is kind of at a premium, uh, we fly. And my parents had just flown home through SeaTac recently, and they were like, John Wayne is fine, SeaTac was terrible, you should get TSA pre-check. And they told us about a place to go get it. It's this place that doesn't even show up on Google Maps unless you look for it under a name that, it's not, that isn't posted outside of it. Um, so I don't remember which one is the one listed on the internet, which one is posted outside, but they don't match. It's hard to find. Um, but, but we decided to get TSA pre-check, okay? And the first, the first time we were going there, I was like, this place is all the way in Laguna Niguel. We live right by the lake here. And so we call them. And I'm like, hey, my passport's expired. Could I bring a marriage certificate as proof of who I am, you know, as my identification? And the lady goes, well, you're supposed to bring a passport. I was like, yeah, I know, but mine's expired. What, what should I do? She says, yeah, you can bring your marriage certificate. Okay, cool. And we show up, and guess what happens? We can't take this marriage certificate. It won't work. So we drove all the way to Laguna Niguel after I've made this call to make sure that it will work out. And then we drive back. And here Megan is dealing with our fussy baby, who's not normally fussy, but that was a lot of time in the car. And it was like 1,000 degrees out, just like it is today. Um, so then we go back. And it's like the sloths in Zootopia um, with just like everything you say, you have to say three times because you don't get what they're saying and they don't get what you're saying because all they have is a script. It's like, here are the words I'm allowed to say to the person I'm talking to. And it's just this frustrating experience. Eventually it worked. What was cool is I got my known traveler number before Megan did. So I don't know. Someone was looking down on me. It was probably due to my merits that I got it. Um, (laughs) People who know me laughed. Uh, well, then we went to, we went up to the island. Um, we didn't use it on the way up because Megan was still waiting for her known traveler number. Um, but we, we did go on the way back. I added my known traveler number into the online boarding pass. Megan did the same. We show up at SeaTac and we go through the TSA pre-check line and lo and behold, my known traveler number is in the right spot or is in the wrong spot. Megan's is good. It says TSA pre-check, and then it has a check next to it. But mine's in the wrong spot. Um, And I'm like, look, there's my number. And the guy's just like, no. So we go talk to the Alaska Airlines people, and they're like, oh, it's in the redress portion, the redress number portion, not the known traveler number portion. This, This can happen sometimes. It looks the same. And I'm convinced in my mind, 
like, this computer did me dirty. <laughs> you know, like, why would it do this to me? Why would it put this number in the wrong spot? I'm not going to lie to you guys. I still kind of feel that way. You can talk to Megan after the service. She thinks that's insane. Um, she's probably right, okay? But here's what happened in that moment. It was a lot of frustration kind of back to back to back to back. What we had to do is go back, get something reprinted, get back in the TSA line and go through. The whole point was that this was supposed to make it easy. And it didn't end up being very easy at all. And Megan pointed out to me that this was illustrating something that's true about me. That when I do something wrong, um, not always sin, sometimes just error, I have a tendency to blame others, point to other things that could have gone wrong. The computer did it. Instead of just saying that it could have been my fault, saying sorry and moving on. And that kind of, that struck a chord. It had a so, because it had a sobering ring of truth to it. Um, I didn't think she was right about that in the moment. But I thought she was right about my heart. And that kind of scared me. Like, is, is this what I do with more important things? Like, this is a silly story, right? We wasted like 15 minutes. Um, not hard to admit, but dang, like what other things are there there that I haven't even admitted to myself? And I, and I wonder if you can relate to that too. I wonder if it feels safer, if it feels more common for you to cover something up, to blame it on something else, to explain why it may have happened instead of just saying sorry. I have a desire to prove that I did not do wrong rather than a desire to say I'm sorry and humbly admit that I was wrong. And, and while many Christians laughed at Donald Trump when he answered that question, I like to be good, I don't like to have to ask for forgiveness. When we laugh at this, are we missing our own actions, our own heart motives? what's really going on inside of ourselves? Are we pointing the finger at him when he should be a mirror that may be expressing itself a little bit more clearly than we really do? Seeking forgiveness is scary because to do it, I have to make myself vulnerable to the one I sinned against. Before we can ever have hope to seek forgiveness truly, we have to know that we can do so in safety or else we'll never do it. And so it's in recognition of this that David decides to begin this psalm with a clear and resounding message, which we've already heard. There is great joy in being forgiven. There's great joy in being forgiven. Hear it again, because your heart believes that there's great pain in talking about your sin. David says, there is great joy great happiness, great blessing in being forgiven. Even though this means admitting our sin, even though pursuing forgiveness on the human level carries the risk of not being received, even though the things we need to be forgiven for come from the parts of ourselves that we're most ashamed of and we guard most closely, there is great joy in being forgiven. Therefore, we need to know this before anything else, that forgiveness brings joy. So once, once David makes this announcement, he moves to his own personal testimony. He says, here's what's true. Okay, here's what that looked like for me. So his testimony is kind of in two parts. It says this, sin was destroying me, then confession restored me. Sin was destroying me, then confession restored me. There is a general sense in which sin is destructive. We believe natural disasters happen because of that. We believe things and people die because of sin. We, we believe that there is an interpersonal cost of sin as well. But what I love about David and what I love about this psalm is that he focuses in a very personal way on how he experienced the destructive force of sin in his inner being and how sin affected his relationship with God. In other words, he didn't tell us about how sin ruined the externals of his life. 
he told us about what sin does on a much deeper level and what it did to him personally. The first thing he tells us is that sin destroys our integrity. David knows our impulse to hide our sin because he had that same nature as we do. We already heard the story about David and Bathsheba and what what he did to Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. In this psalm, he confesses that he kept silent about his sin at first. Look at verse 3. It says, When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. My bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. What poetic and true language that is. David knows that ultimately we live before God and not just each other because his silence about sin was destroying him from the inside out. So he could have easily written about what our sin does with our relationships to each other. It it ruins trust. It does this, it does that. But what he chose to do here was really different because here's why, okay? Even if he had fooled everyone else, God knew his sin. That's a possibility. You could live your whole life looking good in front of other people. That's where the seriousness of this comes in. But God knew David's sin. While denying his sin held out the promise that he could avoid its consequences, David's body and his soul remained fixed in the reality that he had unconfessed sin. And he felt his unconfessed sin in his bones, and he groaned all day long. Guilt and shame can do this to us, can't they? We try to drown it out, but it stays there and it saps us of energy and it makes us groan when we live under the weight of guilt and shame. And I think something that I've already said, which bears saying again because it's so countercultural, I'm not saying we shouldn't feel guilt and shame always. We can certainly feel them wrongly. People can feel shameful because they're not as pretty as they want to be. People can feel shameful because they're not as smart as they want to be or as successful. These are wrong reasons to feel guilt and shame, okay? But we have real reasons to feel guilt and shame, which our culture tells us is just a lie. It's not. But when they're unconfessed, okay, we try to drown it out and it stays there. The more successful we are at denying our guilt and shame, the more extreme the differences between who we are and who we pretend to be become. Has anybody ever had that experience where you're so successful at fooling people and you just feel empty inside because they love you for someone you're not. They love you for who you've pretended to be. They love you for who you have convinced them you are, the successful, perfect, wonderful, and kind person. In these moments, if this is the case, when we see the reality of who we are and what we've done, it can be very overwhelming. Staying silent about sin is not a sustainable option. We groan to the point that our bones become brittle. And so it's not just about managing outcomes that we want to seek forgiveness. It's not just about having better relationships with other people that we want to seek forgiveness for. Regardless of what we're experiencing on the interpersonal human level, sin gives us a dishonest relationship with ourselves. David said earlier, the person is blessed in whose spirit there's no deceit. Sin gives us a dishonest relationship with ourselves and a negative relationship with our God. That's why it wasn't just that David felt guilt or it wasn't just that David felt shame. What what does he say in verse four? Why was he groaning? Why Why were his bones brittle? Was it because of his inner dialogue? Was it because of his unhealthy negative self talk? No, he says, day and night, your hand was heavy on me. The hand of God was heavy on him day and night. This isn't an experience that's merely subjective and personal to David. God's hand was heavy on him. And this was counterintuitively, ultimately grace to David. 
as it is to any of us when we feel the negative impact of sin at a heart level. Nevertheless, it was not enjoyable. The truth is that God loves David and God hates sin. God loves David and God hates sin. And so one part of our gospel hope for joy in eternity is this. We, we can only hope for joy in eternity because God will destroy all sin. And in his silence, David was refusing to part with what a loving and safe God can only be against and purpose to destroy at the end of all things. In these circumstances, the hand of God is heavy. Everyone experiences some of the negative consequences of sin, but only God's people get to feel the weight of sin in this way. It's not, I made my life hard. Okay? Sin might not make your life hard. But oftentimes it does. That's kind of what the Proverbs tell us. Sometimes it doesn't. That's oftentimes what the Psalms tell us. Why are the wicked prospering is a question that comes up over and over again. It's not that I made my life hard, but it's that I sinned against my God. I sit under the weight of his hand. And by feeling the hand of God weighing on him when he had made peace with his sin or, or tried to, David received grace to repent. And that's not something that every person gets. Some of us can live our whole lives deluding ourselves, feeling like we're good, feeling like we're not under the weight of God's hand. David had the grace in this life before the judgment of God comes to feel the weight of God's hand and to repent. That's where he got the grace. So he finishes this section saying, for day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. And then he, and then he says this word, selah. Selah. Has anybody ever heard that word before? Selah? We have to remember that psalms are worship songs. They, they were the hymn book for the Jews. Um, they serve in large part as, as a hymn book for us too. Um, and when you see selah, that's thought to mean that there was a musical interlude or a pause. And this pause was given for reflection. So when David teaches us to say selah, after saying, your hand was heavy on me day and night, my strength was drained as in the summer's heat, he stops for reflection at that point. In writing a pause into this worship song, David does what we do in our worship services when we do our confession of sin. He pauses under the weight of God's hand and he invites us to do the same thing. And it's so uncomfortable to feel the weight of God's hand against our sin that we all try to skip past it as quickly as possible, don't we? When David writes Selah into this psalm, though, he invites all of us to press against this impulse we have to move on and be positive and feel the weight for an intentional moment, not to stay there, but feel it truly. Before we can confess genuinely, we must feel contrition genuinely. Jesus tells us this in Luke chapter 18, when he tells a parable about a Pharisee who goes into a synagogue and says, God, thank you for making me so rad. And then there's another one who's a sinner and goes to the back of the synagogue and doesn't even look up and just beats his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He also tells about this in Luke chapter 7 in verse 47. There's someone who's a big sinner and, and who Jesus forgives. Um, they're asking him about um, well, they're asking about a lot of things. But Jesus makes the point that the person who loves the most is the person who's been forgiven the most. From this place, David brings his sin out in the open. This place of feeling the weight of God's hand against his sin. Now, David knows that God's hand can be heavy, but he also knows that God is merciful, that God is slow to anger. While David's experience with staying silent about his sin led to weakness and brittle bones, confessing his sin before God did the opposite. Look at verse five, right after the Selah. He, he sat under the weight and then he says, then I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And what does God do? You forgave the guilt of my sin. This is where David goes. The thing that keeps us from repentance is the fear that when our sin is made plain, we will be rejected for it. 
Isn't that what keeps us from repentance? When our sin is made plain, we will be rejected for it or will be punished by the person against whom we've sinned. The mystery of the gospel is this, that God instead, our good God accepts us for our confession. He doesn't reject us for our sin. Instead, he accepts us for our confession. And this is a, this is a great mystery, which we'll talk about how it was revealed, how this could even be the case in a little bit. But it's important that we know this. Our hearts tell us confession equals rejection. God tells us confession equals acceptance. The strong man with no faults to admit, the one with no apparent sin, this is actually the man with brittle bones who's dying on the inside, whether he knows it or not. But God knows David's sin. David's soul knows David's sin. David's body knows David's sin. We can get some wisdom from Peter and James who who both quoted the Proverbs when they told us, God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble and opposes the proud. So even though your enemy, your friend, your coworker, your boss, maybe even your spouse may meet your confession of sin with malice towards you for being a sinner, you confess sin and it's like, yeah, I know, how dare you? That's a possibility, isn't it? God, on the other hand, meets contrite sinners with grace and forgiveness. The one with the most reason to do what we fear meets us with grace and forgiveness somehow. And this is where the joy comes from in being forgiven. We fear repentance because it may lead to rejection. However, when we repent genuinely to God, we're accepted with true acceptance, with a full awareness of who we actually are. In human acceptance, we tend to say, it's not that bad. Or, I don't see it that way. I don't see you that way. You see yourself that way. I don't see you that way. Or we just say, it's okay. God's acceptance looks different. He says, I see you for who you really are. I don't deny it. I don't call it good. In fact, I probably call it worse than you do, but I accept you anyway. I accept you anyway. The deepest, darkest parts of you that you've never told anybody, I accept you anyway. That's what God says. Here's here's how he tells us this in Romans 5.8. This is some... This is some ammo for, for going to forgiveness, going to confession. God said this through Paul, but God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we come to God for forgiveness, we actually find that it was his idea to forgive us before it was our idea to repent. He came first, even though we experienced it a little bit differently. And God is the only person this side of heaven with whom we can show up fully, bringing every part of ourselves and be fully accepted and loved. What greater joy could there possibly be? And, but the question is, do we really believe this? That's the question. Do we really believe this? And it's not a doctrinal question. It's a heart question. So think of it this way. When was the last time you confessed something ugly about yourself? When was the last time you could have confessed something ugly about yourself but didn't? Or maybe you're more here. When was the last time you even looked at yourself honestly enough to know that you should have something to confess? Do we really believe this about our God? When we really believe that God forgives, this must work itself out in our relationships. That's, it's not our hope that it's going to fix our relationship. This isn't a how-to to make a better life, but it will work itself out in our relationships. So that's a good measuring stick for how much we believe this. This doesn't mean that it's guaranteed to go well. It's often going to strengthen healthy relationships, but that's not ultimately the hope that helps us confess the hope that we need to have in order to confess our actual sin and our actual lives is that God forgives, not that people will. However, any human being may respond, my sin against God is the biggest problem I have. As we sang today, even sin I do against you is ultimately a sin against God. That's what makes all of it important. So if that's true, I don't have to defend myself. I don't have to have my confession accepted by somebody else, even though I should want that. I should want restored relationships. But I shouldn't need that if my sin has been dealt with already. 
When I know I'm forgiven by God, I have a peace that restores me in my inner being, and it causes me to move toward restoring myself to the world outside of me in faith. When I know that God will not reject me for my sin, it gives me the strength to bear when people do reject me for my sin. So the joy of being forgiven is great enough that David calls us to pause again to reflect on the joy of forgiveness. He says, Selah. And so how often do you pause on the joy of being, re- of being forgiven? How often do you pause to reflect on that? If the answer is not often, I, I want to ask you, just do it more. It's such good news. And now David gives us an invitation. And that invitation says, repent right now. Repent right now. So because of this potential for incredible joy, David says, In verse 6, basically, God, do not let people wait to repent. Don't let them wait around. This is what he says. Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. Don't wait. We avoid repentance out of fear of pain, but David is saying to us, the one whose sins are forgiven is happy. Let me remind you, there's joy. There could be pain, but the joy is greater. Repent right now. He says, God, don't let them wait. If God is not real, we really honestly have no reason to repent truly. Um, There's just too much risk. We should really only repent to other people when we're found out, and uh, basically to the extent that it appeases their anger toward us so we can have an enjoyable life again. But if God is real, then we sinners have problems way bigger than we even have the capacity to understand. And so for the joy for the coming of God's wrath on all sin in this world, which is part of our hope, by the way. David says, God, don't let them wait. Make them do it now. This is why, or if God's real, we know that there's no bigger problem for human beings than the problem of sin, because God will not let sin stand against his final judgment. And so this is why it's such wonderful news that God forgives. Disaster will come because of sin, but not to those who have been forgiven. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that you will never experience anything bad, okay? All of us will. That's part of living in this world. But, but disaster ultimately won't come to us. So if you're waiting on repentance, don't do it. If you want to hear from the New Testament, Peter, Peter says in 1 Peter verses, chapter 4, verse 3, he says that the time has been sufficient. So we all know there's some joy to be had in sin, don't we? What, what the heck else will we be doing it for? Peter levels with us on that. But, but he just comes to us and says, the time has been sufficient. You've got all that's worth getting out of this. So let's repent. There's been plenty of time to sin. Who knows how much time we have to repent? Nobody. Even more, repenting leads to joy. It's not out of fear that we repent. It's in pursuit of joy and pleasure with our God. Sin can be, the joy sin gives can be so short-lived. None of us really know the cost in the long run. In light of the fact that repentance leads to forgiveness, which leads to great joy, don't protect your sin. Confess your sin. Leave it and receive forgiveness. We get an opportunity to reflect on that great joy in a little while when we take repentance. The visible gospel, the body and blood of Christ, broken and shed for us. And now David moves to a promise in closing. And his promise is this, repentance will lead to safety. We fear that it's going to lead to pain, but it's going to lead to safety ultimately. In repentance, we find that the God who should be our destroyer because of our sin instead becomes our protector. It was true in David's experience in verse 7. He says, you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. And then he asks us to reflect again on how wonderful that is. It's also true for everyone, and David wants us to know that. So he doesn't leave us listening to his appeal to God, saying, God, don't let him wait. Instead, he appeals to us directly. It's not just David telling his story. What he really believes is that this is true. And so he wants to persuade you and me to do what he did for our good. And so he says, 
It's not clear whether this is actually coming from David or coming from God, but this is one of those cases where that doesn't matter as much as it might in other places. The, the outcome is the same. This is an appeal to you. What do you do in light of God's call on your life? Don't be stubborn, he says. Don't be disobedient. God is going to make everything he wants to happen happen one way or another, but it's better to follow willingly than it is to be pulled around by force. He gives us another reason to repent right now. There are opposite and sure promises depending on forgiveness. There are opposite and sure promises depending on forgiveness. One is that many pains will come to the wicked. The other is that the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. So while this isn't a promise of no pain in this life, this is a promise of no pain in eternity. And right now in the midst of pain, we have a promise that faithful love, if we trust in God, faithful love will surround us in the midst of our joys and in the midst of our pains. This is an excellent and wonderful promise. It asks us to look forward at what's coming. Sin will go away. God, please don't take me with it. Take me with you. The offer is held out by our Lord's hand. What do you want? Do you want pains forever? Do you want faithful love? Lean into the good promise, not away from the bad only, into the good, faithful love with God, restoration of relationship with our creator who gives us everything that we are and everything that we have. But the question remains, how can this be true? What's the difference between the wicked one and the one who trusts the Lord? Is the trusting person good? If that's not the case, how could a good God accept this person just for their trust? Well, Paul asked the same question throughout his life, and luckily he answered it for us in, in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 3, there's, there's a lot here, um, but let's just go ahead and camp out on the highlighted portion. Oh, it's not highlighted. Well, it's highlighted here. <laughs> it says, you know, that God's righteousness has been manifested apart from the law. There's a lot looking back onto the old covenant, which leads us thinking, well, what was happening with his righteousness during all this time when God was passing over sin, doing nothing about it? It left God's people always with this question. How long, O Lord? It gives us imprecatory psalms. Punish my enemy, O Lord. Seemingly no response. Paul says this, that he put forth Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Why? It was to show God's righteousness. In other words, God passing over sins for so long called his righteousness into question. And Paul says his righteousness was not worthy of question, but he did show us his righteousness in Christ. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, leaving us wondering, how could you do that? It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. These seem opposite. How could God be just and the justifier of the sinner who has faith in Christ? It's because of the atoning work that Christ did on our behalf. So think for a moment about the significance of the word trust when David writes it. He doesn't know how his God could forgive and be just, but he knows that God has promised to forgive and is just. So to receive forgiveness always requires trust, but less so for us than it did for David. We have to believe that God exists. We have to believe that God will forgive if we ask him to. We have to believe that his forgiveness will lead to joy, but it does not require a trust from us that violates our experience of reality. In fact, the deepest parts of who we are are really crying out for a relationship that can offer real forgiveness. We fear that we won't get forgiveness, but we want it so bad. Tune into your heart. Isn't that true? We fear that we won't give forgiveness, but we can't stop wanting it. Here's what the recently deceased Tim Keller was known for saying. Two very profound things about the gospel. One is this. To be loved but not known is comforting, but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, but to be fully known and fully loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. 
fully known, fully loved. The second thing he, he often said was this, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. You're worse than you ever thought you were, but you're more loved than you ever dared to dream. This is it. This is the thing that we know we need. But if we're honest, we fear we can't get it. That's why we hide. To be fully known, to be fully loved, to be accepted, not because we're great, but despite the fact that we know we're not. So I'll close with this. The two things that keep us from seeking forgiveness are this. We don't believe we need it, or we don't believe we're going to get it. We don't believe we need it, or we don't believe we're going to get it. You might lean one way or the other. I think a little bit of both of those are true for all of us. God gets out in front of these fears with the good news of Jesus Christ. We are sinners, but God already knows that better than we do. In fact, God decided to love us before we decided we wanted to get better. We do deserve punishment. We don't deserve acceptance. But Jesus took the punishment and rejection that we deserve. The price has been paid. Because of this, God has prepared a safe place for us to bring the deepest, darkest parts of ourselves to him and say, I'm sorry. And the good news is that we can be restored. There's great joy in forgiveness. It's the gift you never thought you would get. It's a gift you never believed could happen. There's great joy in forgiveness. And so God is calling you, God is calling me to come and find it freely through Jesus Christ. Though this is scary, risky, and sometimes painful, through this act of trust, God's, in God's goodness to us, we can learn what it means to be fully known and fully loved in Jesus Christ. Through this, we can learn what it means to be fully known and fully loved through Jesus Christ. Would you do that? Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.